Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds. Today, we are going to speak with a physician who has been very involved with advocating for physicians to take medicine back. Dr. Mitch Lee is going to talk to us today about exactly what that means for him and what his group is interested in helping doctors do. Welcome to the show, Mitch. Thank you for having me. Now, you actually have an organization called TakeMedicineBack.org. What do you guys do? You got it. I think to physicians, it might sound intuitive. I think to the general public, I had one of the bank tellers when I was opening up the bank account ask if I was starting like a chiropractic shop. So that got a little confusing, but with the medicine in the back. But what we're talking about is taking the profession of medicine back from corporate interests. Some people blame the government. At this point, frankly, there is a lot of overlap there. So we're taking we're talking about taking the profession of medicine back to the actual profession. And that focuses around the concept, the doctrine, and the legal prohibitions on the corporate practice of medicine. Now, I understand there are, what, 35 states that are against the corporate practice of medicine. Um, you have to have a physician owner. Are those 35 states honoring that or are they getting around that law somehow? What have you found? Yeah, to, depending on how you count them, somewhere between 32 and 38 states have some form of a prohibition on the corporate practice of medicine in legal form. And I'm not an attorney, but there are different levels of law. Essentially, there's statute, there's attorney general opinions, and there are varying strengths with varying exceptions. But to keep this in context, the corporate practice of law is upheld. Attorneys and lawyers are not allowed to have any non-lawyer owners in their practice. We're talking about a layperson. It could just be Joe Schmo down the street that isn't allowed to own a law firm. At this point, the lack of enforcement on the corporate practice of medicine is widespread. Of course, we have about 74%, around three quarters of physicians employed by some entity and they don't own their own practices. So this is what we see every day. And the way that states, state laws are bypassed is through legal mechanisms that skirt the corporate practice of medicine. And I can get into those in a little more detail. Okay, that'd be great. Are we talking about like the big groups, you know, that maybe are employing the ER physicians, the hospitalist physicians? Are those the groups that you're kind of focused on here? I think there's a progression of the disease. If you look at a the the essence of a corporate practice of medicine prohibition, it's really about a physician owning their practice. So this could be a single physician, family doc who puts out a shingle and says, hey, I'm a practice. And that's what we're seeing a renaissance of with the direct primary care movement. And, and it would prohibit their neighbor who is an accountant from owning that practice and employing that physician, for example. But what we are seeing is that not only are 74% of physicians employed by corporations, but those corporations aren't your mom and pop shops of yesterday. These corporations are not the local nonprofit 
corporation that's run by the local nuns. They're not charitable corporations. These are now rapidly consolidated, vertically integrated and horizontally integrated mega corporations, hospital systems, but especially private equity firms and insurance companies like United Health and Optum. And what have you seen? How are they how are they directing care? Because I think that's the problem is when they start to direct the the practice of medicine is when that actually becomes a problem, not only for the doctors, but for the patients. So how have you seen that they're able to accomplish those things? Right. So in, in theory, or when, when the corporate practice of medicine doctrine was created, which was big back in the 18, late 1800s, essentially with Standard Oil, you had these large, you know, beginning of the trusts during the Gilded Age. And doctors started to be employed by these large corporations. And there was a feeling that that these corporations could profit off of the doctor's work. There's a conflict of interest. They could commercialize it and they could influence the independent medical judgment of physicians. Now, I, I think we're so used to it that we barely realize it. I mean, we, we have an intuitive sense, but I, I'd ask any of your listeners to think if they work within a corporate structure, how their practice is affected. And there are a few mechanisms that are of control that are, are, are pretty egregious. And we're seeing an awful lot of non-competes with large hospital systems so that a physician couldn't practice medicine in their community without staying with one hospital system or with one group. And we're also seeing a lack of due process. Due process essentially being a fair trial or hearing if your right to work or your job is being threatened. So we see this especially when hospitals contract with third parties like private equity-backed contract management groups in emergency medicine, anesthesia, radiology. Uh, and that's where oftentimes these groups are run by private equity firms and the hospital subcontracts to them. Physicians that are employed <clears throat> directly by the hospital have, by and large, due process rights baked into the bylaws. Now, they're not perfect, but that's a contingency of federal funding. When there's a third party, that third party is not actually uh, required as a contingency of Medicare reimbursement or federal funding. So this creates a situation where a physician can simply be taken off the schedule if they bring up something inconvenient like dangerous staffing levels. Now, we do see unionized nurses. There's certainly a, a bit of a surge of unionizing physicians, but nurses are well ahead of us. And one thing you will see is that they are actually able to speak out, raise concerns about patient safety. We are essentially disempowered to do that when we probably, in theory, should be the patient's strongest advocate. Gotcha. And have you seen, are they able to actually limit the way physicians practice, um, the number of patients per day, the tests that they order? Are, are they able to put those restrictions in as well in some of the contracts? Or I know you can't say it directly, but actually make the physician refer to other physicians within the private equity group? Right. So there's there's probably different, as far as private equity goes, there's a few different mechanisms of how, how they extract wealth, essentially, from physicians and patients. I'm an emergency physician and emergency medicine is probably led the sellout. So I can use that as an, a sort of an example. Now, we're talking about within the emergency department staffing levels, right? If you have your own practice, you can theoretically limit how many patients per day you see to the point that you're I like to say, even if you're the most potent physician and most effective physician, you can be diluted to the point of homeopathic inefficacy 
if you are overwhelmed with uh, too many patients. So staffing levels and staffing mixes, whether they're emergency physicians, physicians, nurse practitioners, or physician assistants, and what ratio there are of those patients, combined with how acute or complex the patients are, those decisions need to be in the hands of the physician, the practicing physicians. And those are not. So first, probably the most, the way that is most intrusive on a regular basis is just those staffing levels. We're drowning. Essentially, we don't have time to treat the patients appropriately, along with the ancillary staff, you know, beds for patients, essentially. So then you move on to other ways that they can potentially control things, which, for example, are order sets that might be passed down from a corporate angle, decided at a higher level. Nurses that might put in order sets that are prescribed by the corporation and by the hospital so that by the time we see the patient, there's already a whole bunch of tests ordered under our names, sometimes unnecessary ones. You know, as, a, as hospitalists, you might see a bunch of extra tests upstairs. I don't think you usually complain about extra tests, but the radiologists definitely do about all the extra radiation that we provide. There are those sort of subtle ways of controlling that kind of a practice. And then there's more egregious ones that have been documented in the past, like with MCARE, Envision, now bankrupt, HMA, not HCA, but hospital, but HMA was a previous now defunct hospital system. And in that, they actually had memos and metrics to admit greater than 50% of Medicare eligible patients, regardless of their need to be admitted. So this is clearly a financial driver that was pushing for admission essentially to create a Medicare mill, regardless of the patient's need medically. So there's countless of exa examples of these, and, and we can talk about more in depth. So how do you go about trying to take this back and get the physicians back in control of medicine again? Where do you even start with that? Yeah, I think there's a question of sort of how do you unscramble the egg? Is it possible? I've heard some people you know, call this this adventure jousting at windmills, or it's like being a paper bag in a hurricane. And I think we've got an awful lot of learned helplessness. There's precedent for this. The lawyers own their own practices, and there are differences between law and medicine in, in an awful lot of respects. But, um, but essentially, we both consider ourselves learned professions. And if we consider the physician-patient relationship at least as important as the attorney-client relationship, then this shouldn't be a question. Of, of whether we do it. How we do it is um, an awful lot. Uh, there's some details, but we can. So there's always exceptions to the corporate practice of, of medicine in different states. And of course, hospitals are, are common employers of physicians. And the thought process was that at least nonprofit hospitals and rural and public hospitals had the public interest as a charge and were regulated to some degree. So there have been exceptions for nonprofits to employ physicians. And there will probably remain exceptions no matter what happens to future enforcement of laws or any new legislation. But most of those laws presume that the nonprofits are not influencing the practice of medicine. And I think your listeners would probably agree that that's not really the case anymore. And the nonprofits of today don't look anything like the nonprofits of the 1950s and earlier when these laws were created. We can get into a number of details, but I think we need to start with the presumption that these corporations are influencing the practice of medicine and that any exception to employ physicians needs to come with a waiver and a very high bar to prove that they are not influencing the practice of medicine. Things like very strong 
anti-retaliation laws, whistleblower protections, due process bylaws, and complete transparency in what's collected and billed, billed and collected in the physician's name so that we can know that there's not illegal fee splitting occurring. And then had you tried to involve like legislators, attorneys, try to get a grassroots effort from the physicians? How is your group kind of working to start unscrambling that egg, so to speak? Yeah, well, I suppose I should back up a little bit and talk about how we got started. We started in 2019. I'm, I'm about seven years out of residency now. 2000, I graduated residency in 2017. And when I was a resident, my the group of attendings sold to Team Health, which was then acquired by Blackstone, the private equity firm. So I saw this in action. I didn't really know all the details of what was going on. I was more focused on the medicine, learning, wanted to do some thoracotomies and just do all the fun things at that point. But after graduating, I realized that this was occurring at pretty much all of the groups. And so looking for a job became an exercise in just watching my colleagues say that they were on a partnership track and then their group was sold out from under them to all different kinds of contract management groups and private equity firms. I had a bit of a financial literacy, I call it a little financial literacy fellowship and journal club with another colleague of mine. And at the same time that I was learning about, you know, basic financial advisors ripping physicians off and index funds and assets under management in parallel was paying attention to what was going on in, in medicine and especially emergency medicine. Now, the American Academy of Emergency Medicine was formed in 1993, and that was in response to a recognition and a perception that the American College of Emergency Physicians, our so-called main specialty society, was contributing to the corporatization of medicine and the commoditization of our colleagues through essentially this birth of contract management groups. Instead of local physicians all having co-ops or sort of equal control and ownership and partnership in their practices, like law firms are more or less today, there would be regional contracts and maybe one or two physicians who own those groups and profited off their colleagues' labor. And that was essentially ripe for the picking for private equity firms that can take a mature business and essentially squeeze it. 1992, a book called The Rape of Emergency Medicine was published. It was a bit of a niche book and probably would be named differently if it was today, but it described what was going on in with this commoditization of, of emergency physicians and led to the formation of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, which was a alternative to the American College of Emergency Physicians. Both groups exist to this day. I don't think there is precedent for this in any other specialty to have two competing specialty societies. And more recently, the American Academy of Emergency Medicine sued Envision which is now bankrupt, but still exists in California, alleging the illegal corporate practice of medicine. So the American Academy of Emergency Medicine is really what inspired me to look at this and also gave me the professional space without being potentially professionally assassinated by those who have conflicts of interest in order to start take medicine back. The American Academy of Emergency Medicine had the right values and philosophy, and they've been taking action but they've done so really within the profession of emergency medicine and we needed to expand and we needed to do something or have an organization that's singularly focused on this as opposed to you know running scientific assemblies and things that lawsuit's going on we support it absolutely because that will have huge implications for 
specialties outside of emergency medicine. I don't think that there's enough awareness about the lawsuit. There is, they're not seeking any monetary damages. There's technically, they have standing based on monetary damages, but they are not seeking monetary damages because most of these lawsuits end in, end in settlements and then no judgment is made. So they're seeking a judgment, which would essentially say that Envision would need to stop practicing in California. And that would create precedent for the corporate practice of medicine in California and other states could potentially follow suit. So we're uh, very aligned with that, but we're also looking at policy on a state and national level. At this point, it's fairly clear to us that despite 34 states prohibiting the corporate practice of medicine, that they're universally unenforced. And we find two things when we dive deep in each state. One, the attorneys general's offices are not pursuing this, at least as a priority. And the state medical boards are not enforcing this among their members. Again, as an attorney, if an attorney were to sell their practice or aid and abet the illegal corporate practice of law, they would be disciplined and likely disbarred. Whereas physicians have not left, lost their licenses or been disciplined at all for serving as paper owners to skirt the corporate practice of medicine. I, can get, I, think, I don't think we dove into that one. I can get into that a little bit. But at this point, we've been appealing to attorney general's offices that this is a problem and also some state medical boards. Seeing that this is still broadly unenforced, we're looking to bring this to the next level, which is going to be the introduction of a national prohibition on the corporate practice of medicine. Sounds like a lot to accomplish. And I'm just glad that someone has actually taken that on. I'm not sure how to quite say that, but I'm impressed that your group is actually working toward doing that. You had mentioned using a physician to try and get around the laws. How does that work? Right. So the, the laws that exist essentially say that a physician needs to be an owner of the group. And that was the idea that it would actually be our judgment that was applied to patients and that our professional and ethical duties to patients first would be protective of the patients. A paper owner, sometimes called a friendly physician or the friendly PC model, professional corporation model, is often used by these corporate entities to make it appear on paper that they own the group. This is done through some legal maneuvers like stock transfer restriction agreements, where essentially, even though the physician owns the uh, group on paper, they don't have any actual power to sell, buy, distribute stocks or to make decisions within the company. So these are the physicians. If there are physicians that have truly sold us out, these are the ones who, without any reasonable doubt, have seen paperwork that have said, we need you to make it appear that you own this group so that we can bypass these laws meant to protect patients. So the most egregious case of this known widely is Greg Byrne in Texas, who on paper owned 300 different medical practices, about 300, in 20 different states. This was discovered in a wrongful termination suit. Ray Brovant was an emergency physician who was concerned about understaffing in the emergency department under MCARE and Vision. You know, they would be called away to codes on the floor, and then the emergency department would be uncovered with, you know, major trauma coming in because they had single physicians coverage. 
he raised these concerns. He was removed and fired. And in his case, he was actually able to win a wrongful termination suit. During the discovery phase of that, they found that Greg Byrne owned 300 of these groups on paper. And it was quite clear Ray Brovant had never heard of him. Um, it was quite clear that this physician was not actually somebody working there. He didn't actually buy these groups. He was acting just as an agent for uh, the corporation. Um, complaints have been made by physicians against him at the Texas Medical Board, but the complaints have been denied. There have been appeals. They've been denied to even investigate this. At the same time, the Texas Medical Board president is actually a U.S. Anesthesia Partners executive. And U.S. Anesthesia Partners, if you are familiar, was just sued by the Federal Trade Commission for a roll-up strategy with the private equity firm Welsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe. So there are some significant conflicts of interest there, and we do have a lot of work to do with our own profession to take it back. So how are you getting doctors involved in the various states to try and combat this at the local level? I assume you have to start at the local level, or do you just go straight to Congress and try and get that taken care of? Where do you start? Yeah, so this has been over the course of several years. 2019 was our first Take EM Back Summit, which was emergency medicine focused. And then we turned to the, the full profession of medicine, and that's what we've been focusing on over the past several years. We had another summit virtual. The first summit was like during the Omicron variant of, of COVID. So it was going to be in person and we swapped that to virtual and then realized that in person is quite a bit of work. So we did virtual a second time. It was quite successful. And we had we had engagement and videos from Republican Treasurer Dale Falwell in North Carolina, Republican Senator Roger Marshall from Kansas and Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts, um, all speaking to the fact that we get retaliated against when corporations, when corporations exert their dominance and, and will on the profession of medicine. So we got a lot of engagement in the congressional space, but we are at the same time working on individual physicians because we did a very informal poll on how familiar people were with the concept of the corporate practice of medicine. And I think if you say corporatization, then people intuitively get it, physicians get it. But when you ask them if they're familiar with the corporate practice of medicine doctrine or laws, uh, you get a few blank stares or maybe I've heard of it. And to me, that's a little bit crazy, right? We all intuitively feel that our profession is being corporatized. Um, but we don't realize that there's a doctrine and state laws on the books. And we need to revive that and say, hey, we got to take our profession back. We are working on educating individual physicians and figuring out which ones have the fight left in them. And we're identifying essentially people to champion these issues in their different states. And we're finding some amazing folks come out of the woodworks and bring these issues to their state medical boards, mostly their state medical societies and professional organizations. I mentioned the American College of Emergency Physicians as being thought of as a group that has corporatized the profession and led to these problems. Well, this past year, they've come out with a very strong statement opposing the corporate practice of medicine. And they're having Lena Khan, who's the Federal Trade Commission chair, speak at the Scientific Assembly this year. That's the group that would be breaking up these large groups, suing the U.S. Anesthesia Partners, which is partly owned by a private equity firm, 
that's an about face from about 30 years of harm and policies that really put our specialty and profession back. So we're seeing this change happen both at the large professional society level and on the local level at different state medical societies. In some places, they, the, even the medical societies and their general counsels didn't realize they had policies on the books and didn't realize that these laws existed. So sometimes it's easy, as simple as saying, hey, this is a problem. Can we write a letter to the attorney general in our state requesting to investigate this lack of enforcement? Can we write a letter to the medical boards because they have the ability to do this? And if they get answers that are no, or we're not going to look into this, then we have better documented that we need a national prohibition on the corporate practice of medicine, which we're pursuing in tandem along with the American Medical Association. It sounds like you've made great progress already, although there's a lot more to do, obviously. For anyone listening that wants to get involved, where can I send them to get more information, attend meetings, get on mailing lists, you know, help write letters? Where can they go to, to get involved? Yeah, so takemedicineback.org is probably the easiest one, although we are growing as an organization and the website's a little outdated, but they can find the Facebook page, they can email there. Facebook is probably our most active place, but we're also on Twitter at take or whatever X now at take med back on Facebook. We do have a mailing list that if folks want to join that, they can email me, Mitch Lee, M-I-T-C-H-L-I. MD at takemedicineback.org. Mailing list eventually will probably be our most reliable place if they want to join meetings or stay up to date. Facebook for the conversation. And if they really want to get involved in the state level, there's a lot to do, including if they want to get involved through the AMA, where you need all the different sections, young physicians, residents, the actual states and specialty societies. They all have voices at the AMA. Awesome. Mitch, thanks for coming on the show and sharing this with us. I do think we have kind of a lack of knowledge of the laws that are there to protect us that we've kind of just not been aware of maybe over the years and we've kind of let things get away from us. So I'm glad that you're working on this to try and get us back in control of our profession. Thanks so much for having me. And I hope you'll all join me again next week for Grand Rounds. <laughs>